How difficult is it for a professional golfer to sink a putt that long? Real tough. How difficult is it for the champion weightlifter in the history of the world to pick up 20 pounds? That's not very difficult, is it? How difficult is it for the world's long jump champion to jump 10 feet? He can almost do that stepping over a chair, can't he? How difficult is it to resist sin? Well, according to a brand new heresy that is beginning to rear its ugly antichrist's head among members and brethren of God's church, many of whom I was responsible, Christ actually in and through me, because it was merely my voice as an instrument, was responsible for bringing into God's church in the first place, are beginning to propose that it was impossible for Christ to sin. If it was utterly impossible for Jesus Christ to sin, then what was all of the pain and suffering about? What's the whole big deal if it's impossible for Christ to sin? I'm completing an article that is going to become a major booklet, and I will also produce it in brochure form and announce it in one of my first or third class letters, so you'll all get a chance to read it, that is going to go very, very thoroughly through dozens of scriptures I won't have a chance to cover today. But let's turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Matthew as I ask you, what would be the way the average concert pianist would prepare for an appearance in Carnegie Hall? Now, Becky here is a very good pianist, and she could probably give you a little bit of insight into that. Having had the privilege of meeting and shaking the artistic hand of Mr. Horowitz, having seen and heard and met and been with some of the top concert violinists and pianists and guitarists that the world has ever produced. And having asked some of them about this very question, I understand that some of them practice as many, get ready for this, as eight hours a day. Just before a concert, they will practice sometimes four hours without stopping, just going through the most intricate Piano numbers. How difficult is it for a wonderful pianist like Horowitz to play chopsticks? Kind of easy, isn't it? Well, how do they get ready for a contest? How does a professional basketball player get ready for the NBA championship? How does a professional golfer get ready for the U.S. Open? How does a race car driver get ready for the Indy 500? They practice, 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 don't they? as anyone would if they're about to undergo a tremendous test. It says in chapter 4 of the book of Matthew, verse 1, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, it says Christ was tempted, and so these people who are beginning to circulate papers and beginning to teach and to imply that Jesus could not have sinned acknowledge that he was tempted. So they look up the original Greek word, but they didn't look quite far enough. Because if you look up this original Greek word, peinao, P-I-E-N-A-O, you will find it comes from a root just a few words earlier, which actually comes from a word that means to pierce through, to test, to sample, to pierce through. Now that evokes the concept 
of my grandmother when I was a boy testing the loaf of bread that she took from the oven with a big old hat pin. Have you ever seen a woman do that in testing the dough to find out whether it will stick to or adhere to the pin if it goes all the way to the middle of the loaf? And if it doesn't and it comes out, apparently, then it's done inside. But if it's still kind of moist and clinging to the pin, it's not done inside yet. The actual Greek word, to be tempted, means to be pierced through. It is a, a traumatic word. It, it is a word, word that evokes a certain amount of pain and struggle. It's not an easy, nonchalant word, but a word that sets up an inner struggle, a battle, a contest. He was to be tempted of the devil. Who's the devil? Well, we know by looking in the 28th chapter of Ezekiel and the 14th chapter of Isaiah, the devil had once been Lucifer, who was a great archangel, who was called the shining bright light of the dawn, or the light bringer. He was called one of the cherubs that covered, who was right overshadowing the very throne of God, a very great, vibrant, powerful creature, actually the most clever, wily, subtle, suggestive, magnetic, attractive creature this side of heaven, who is called the prince of the power of the air, who has power over the air, was able to actually bring his own private little tornado in and destroy the home and the family of Job. He had the power to do that. He's called the god of this world. Now here Satan the devil was going to try to overthrow the Son of God. But if he knew that he didn't have a chance, let's look at it from both points of view. Why was the devil even there? Why be concerned? Why not fold up his tent and quietly steal away because he was defeated before he started, right? I mean, was he brilliant enough in his twisted reasoning to think he had a chance? You know he was, that he thought he had a chance. Now, if Christ, on the other hand, thought there was no chance for Satan the devil to overthrow him, get him thinking wrong thoughts, give in to temptations, give in to vanity, give in to an agonizing, gnawing hunger that had him emaciated to the point of death, then Christ, with his nonchalance, ho-hum, would have just waltzed up there to meet the devil. Hi, devil, how you doing? And then wait for him to say a few things. Uh, devil, whenever you get ready, you can just get out of here and go on your way, because uh, ho-hum, it's easy for me. I mean, uh, you couldn't tempt me if you tried. Why, here was a, here was a human being who could have walked past a hundred Marilyn Monroes without a stitch on. <gasps> there goes crazy women. Hey, look at the tree over there. No problem, right? No problem. Isn't it incredible that a church organization, any church organization, any churchmen, any theologians at any time, anywhere, could begin to delve deeply into who and what Jesus was before his human birth, who and what he was in the flesh as a human being. Was he God or was he human? Now, if he was God, could he sin? God can't sin. It says in the Bible, it is impossible for God to lie. Or was he God in the flesh, fully God, yet fully human? They like to use that term now in some of their literature, fully. That comes from Protestantism. They use that term from time to time in some of their expressions about Jesus Christ. Christ was to be tempted of the devil. 
Verse 2, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Now, why did he fast? Well, it wasn't because he had acne. It wasn't because he was trying to overcome some physical problem. We read of another account where the disciples had actually been commissioned of Christ and sent out two by two, and many of them had had power over demons. They came back ecstatic with joy. They said, Master, even the demons are subject unto us in your name. And they came to demoniacs and said, I command in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that you leave this child alone, that you depart from here. And the children were given their senses back, and they were ecstatic and overjoyed. Well, here came a man whose son was possessed of a demon. And that son was being thrown into open fires and singed and burnt. He was being thrown into water. That demon was trying to destroy that child, burn him to death or drown him. And the man was beside himself. He said, Master, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus, with his word, commanded the demon to part. And the boy was taken up normal and whole into the arms of his parents, just like he always had been before. And so the disciples came privately. They didn't want to say this in front of the people before whom they were embarrassed, and said, Why, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said, This kind cometh not out, but by fasting and prayer. You remember how when Jesus was in his own country, and he actually said that a prophet is not without honor except among his own kin and in his own country, and then what were the next words in that passage? Any Bible students here who recall? And it said, And there he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief, didn't it? What? Christ's powers were somehow limited. When Peter says, at the gate called Beautiful, the man was lifted up and walked, you see how faith with his faith has made this man walk. So faith mixed with faith produces a miracle because it sets up the flow of a current. Because God's Holy Spirit flows like a current from God through a human instrument in good works and back toward Almighty God, because it is not a power source like a battery that stows up or stores up power, and then it is there like static energy of some sort. It has to continually flow. Jesus said, He that comes to me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, talking about the Holy Spirit, flowing forth in good deeds. So Jesus Christ of Nazareth himself had to say, The Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And without him, Christ said he couldn't do anything. He said he could work nothing except that the Father had sent him and did the works in and through him. Now here on the one hand is a demon that will not come out except through fasting and prayer. On the other occasion, Christ, quote, could do no mighty work because of their unbelief, end quote. Now Christ is getting ready to meet Satan the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered, and that means literally near starvation. The average person can live about eight days. That is, if you're mentally tranquil and calm. If you get out here in the woods, you get lost in a hunting accident of some sort, maybe it's cold or even if it's hot. If you become panicked and you get all crazed and you're running around in circles, you can completely deplete your energy and you can suffer exhaustion and, and exposure and even with fairly warm temperatures, you can be dead in a couple or three days. If it's cold, you can be dead in that same night. But if you're in full possession of your faculties, you're in full possession of your mind, you are tranquil, 
I think people could fast 10, 12, 14 days, maybe longer. I'm sure there have been longer fasts recorded. Perhaps even Gandhi fasted longer than that. But the longest ones recorded in the Bible are those of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and Moses and Elijah. Forty days and forty nights. Forty days without water. You suppose there was ever a time, ten days, twelve, fourteen, seventeen days into that fast, when a thought of a savory lamb roast kind of came wafting through the back of Jesus' mind. I remember my dear beloved mom, who was slowly starving to death back in 1967, who sat in bed because she was so convinced she was going to be healed at any moment, and was actually writing out and planning menus that she would enjoy when she was healed and could get up and about in the house again because she couldn't eat anything at all except just little tiny cups of bouillon and almost nothing. And she was slowly starving to death, and that's exactly what eventually killed her because of an intestinal difficulty that took my mother's life. I saw her wrestling with what food can do to you. Now, I won't take you through some of the stories that I've read, and they are true stories, including those who escaped the old whaler Essex that was actually sunk by a huge whale off the coast of Chile about a century or so ago, into cannibalism, and those who, when they died, said, fellows, go ahead and drink my blood before you consume the flesh. No, I won't even take you into that except to say briefly that we saw it in every war in humankind, with the conceivable exception of the war in Iraq, but any long and protracted war where people, in a matter of days, have resorted to cannibalism because of the pangs of hunger. Here was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who was hungry. Now, I read in the Bible that Christ perspired. I read that he got tired. I read that he went without sleep. I read that he drank water. He was at the well and asked for a cup of water. I read that he ate food, fish, and lamb, and he gave a sop that was the juices of a lamb roast to a man named Judas Iscariot. I read that he was known as a wine-bibber, a word that they used to try to belittle him because he was known to take a glass of wine at a meal, including the meals of some of the scribes and Pharisees and others who commonly drank Judean wine of that day. So he drank water and wine, and he ate food, and he breathed air, and he grew tired, and he perspired, and he was fleshly and human, wasn't he? We could wait all the way through First John, and I should say the first chapter of John, and the first chapter of Hebrew. I might, Hebrews, I might have time for a few of those in a few minutes, maybe not. We shall see. But he was human. He became hungry. This is not someone who didn't experience the pangs of hunger, but someone who was near starvation. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you be the Son of God, I could go very deeply into a call I had with a vice president of an insurance company many, many years ago that really got the job done when I suggested that he didn't have any authority. Let me tell you that human nature being what it is, if you're in some very low echelon of authority and somebody suggests that you do not have any authority, usually people rise up to their hauteur and the, the full vanity of their mind and they say, what do you mean I don't have any authority? I'll show you who has authority. I'm in charge here. And they like to show their authority. Satan was trying to appeal to what he thought might be vanity because he's saying, if you are who you say you are, now you know that would really hurt the CEO of a major corporation. That might hurt a doctor 
or a professional of some kind to someone belittle him and say, uh, well, if you are a doctor or if you are really a lawyer, then, and they would say, what do you mean if? Here's my degree. I am what I say I am. It would get to them. Didn't bother Christ because he was so close to God through God's Holy Spirit that he rejected the temptation that came. If you be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread, a two-pronged, subtle temptation, appealing to hunger and to vanity. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city. Did you know there was a time when Jesus Christ, in his human, physical, fleshly body, was conveyed off his feet into the air from one place in the wilderness, in the Negev, maybe 10 miles, 20 or 100, we don't know, and taken to a pinnacle of the temple in the holy city without means of any kind of a magic carpet or any other means of travel except that the prince of the power of the air was there and transported Jesus there and Jesus allowed it to occur. Your Bible says so. There he was. The devil took him into the holy city and set him there on a pinnacle of the temple, one of the topmost pinnacles of the highest part of the temple, maybe up there 80 feet or so, and said, if you be the Son of God, the same theme, we'll appeal to this, we'll keep on probing, see if there's a weakness here. Cast yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone, twisting and perverting scripture. You ever been in a real high place? Some of you may have been to New York and been to the top of the Empire State Building or the two trade towers downtown. You ever been on a real high cliff or a real high overlook like at the Grand Canyon? Did a little voice ever tell you, I wonder what it would be like if I jumped off? Apparently people have done that and found out halfway down and said, oh no, I changed my mind, but it's too late. Golden Gate Bridge or whatever. But yes, there have been people who have confessed to temptations to say, I wonder what would happen if I just took that first step. Well, the devil is trying to tempt Christ to throw himself down by perverting scripture and saying, don't worry, an angel will gather you up. Now, most people have missed what I'm about to tell you, and I don't think you've ever heard it before. What did I just get through telling you? How did Christ get to the pinnacle of the temple? By the power of the prince of the power of the air who took him physically and bodily by an unseen power that overcame gravity and inertia and set him down on the pinnacle, and it says so in the Bible. They didn't walk. They didn't take mule, camel, or donkey and climb up there on a ladder. He was whisked there from the Negev and set down. He had just finished traveling through the air. So it makes his temptation just a little more poignant, doesn't it, to realize that? Go ahead and cast yourself down. We just had a nice trip. The angels will take over this time. They'll bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus knew that he was perverting that scripture. And he said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And here's something else people have missed. They think he's merely quoting scripture from rote memory. He is saying, you're not to tempt me. And most people have missed that. Because Christ over and over and over again said that he was the Son of God, 
I and my Father are one. When he talked about David, why did he then call him Lord? It said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, and make thine enemies my footstool. Why did he say to the Jews before Abraham was, I am? And when Moses asked, When I go to the Israelites, who shall I say sent me? What is your name? I am that I am. You tell them, I am has sent you unto them. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. He was the son of man and fully human. He was the son of God and said so. And other people called him the son of God over and over again, all the way through the Bible. Most of the gospel writers, John especially, called him the son of God. John said, behold, the Lamb of God. He was God's progeny, God's child. But he was also human because it says, we'll read that perhaps if we have time in the second chapter of Philippians, that he emptied himself and that he was born of the Virgin Mary. The genealogies are given in both Matthew and Luke's gospel of how he legally, through Joseph and the legal genealogy of Joseph, was of the seed of David, the house of Jesse, and that he was fully human. He was a human being, but he was also that one who had actually been the creator of the Old Testament, who had parted the Red Seas, who had written the Ten Commandments with his own finger, and who was the God who dealt with the prophets and the patriarchs of old. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to an exceeding high mountain, and here was another one of these quick trips through the air. We don't really pay as much attention to this as perhaps we should, because this was one of the most titanic struggles in the history of the world. Whether or not you would be sitting here today, whether or not I would be standing here in a free nation today with this word, the Bible, open in front of me and being able to teach it to you was hinging and impinging upon what took place in this encounter. This was a titanic struggle for the supremacy of the universe. This was a fight. It was a struggle. And everything was at risk. Eternity was at risk. For God, because the one who had been very God had emptied himself and come down to become a little human zygote, a human fetus, born finally of a virgin, to walk this earth for 33 and a half years in human flesh, experiencing every tug and pull of human nature that any of the rest of us experience. And he placed it all at risk. Everything was at risk. What is at risk when a champion meets a challenger? the championship. What is at risk when a concert pianist of great reputation is playing in Carnegie Hall? His entire reputation, his life's work. He wants to do a superb job, the greatest job of his life. And usually, because of the place and the crowd and the practice, he is up to it. And he comes up with a moving performance that has the people in tears and standing up on their feet and just pounding their hands and standing acclaim. And here Jesus Christ of Nazareth is undergoing one of the most torturous, one of the most monstrous, one of the most climactic battles of mental fatigue and exhaustion, a battle of the will for control of the earth, control of the universe, for success or failure and the entirety of eternity is stretching out before him, remembering eternity from his position of a member of the Godhead in the past, knowing it is all at risk. And so he says, here are all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And verse 9 says, all these things will I give you. You can have it right now. 
if you will but fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil had to obey, and Christ had succeeded. Now, interestingly enough, it said the devil leaves him, or left him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Why? Why, because it was exhausted, because he was so tired and so near death, perhaps, with exhaustion, because he had expended the last reservoirs of all of his spiritual and physical energy. And Jesus sat there on the pinnacle of perhaps Mount Harriman, now maybe 120 miles from where this encounter had begun, and angels came and put their arms around him and cradled his head and gave him a drink of water. And your Savior and mine ate angel food. And they fed him, and they mopped his brow, and they cared for him. Now, for someone to say that this was not a struggle and that Jesus Christ could not have sinned is an heresy of such an incredible rank order, and order both, I'm going to show you, that it's absolutely unbelievable. Let's turn to the first chapter of John right quickly. The Gospel of John, many of you are familiar with it, but it only a very few verses is necessary to show you who and what Jesus was before his human birth and what he was after his human birth. It says, In the beginning was the Word, capital letter W. It is L-O-G-O-S, Logos, or spokesman, or the executive member of the Godhead. Now, I don't want to, uh, to go too far astray, and I don't want to confuse anybody with etymology, except to say that I can prove to you that the English word God comes from a pagan source, okay? But that doesn't mean that we should never use the English word God, because the etymological derivation of the old high German word Gott, which came from Guth, and the Gutones who worshipped Guth, is perhaps an unfortunate accident of history, but the English word God comes from a Hebrew word which is not corrupt and has no corrupt origins, which is Elohim. And Elohim is the plural of Eloah, or El. Y-H-B-H, pronounced by many people, Yahweh, Yahweh, or Java, or Jehovah, is the name by which God is revealed in the Old Testament. The J-H-V-H, or the Y-H-V-H, everywhere you read it in the Hebrew text, is the very same individual who was the Word of John, the first chapter. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because the word God, in Hebrew, is a plural word, like group, or family, or club, or a unit of people, more than one. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness. That was his generation, his age, and the darkness comprehends it not. We can read about John and his witness in verse 9. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Verse 10, he, this one who was God and was with God and who made all the universe, was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Let me just tell you right quickly in passing that there is not one major mainstream fundamentalist Protestant church in the United States of America that believes, accepts, preaches, and teaches that fact. You just read a doctrine that is rejected by Catholics, Methodists, Baptists, Episcopalians, First Church of Christ, Scientists, the Church of Christ, the Christian Church, the Pentecostal churches, and practically all the rest of them. 
Here and there, one little group or another that is branded or labeled a cult by most of those other mainstream fundamentalist churches accepts this truth that the pre-existent Jesus Christ was, in fact, the member of the Godhead who did the creating in Genesis, the first chapter. But very precious few, and yet it's as plain as the nose on your face. He came unto his own, that's the Jews, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him. And you go on and say in verse 17, see right there, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He was very God. He was the creator God, and he made the universe and all humanity. In the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says virtually the same thing. And these two chapters together tell us that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the creator God of the Old Testament. God, who at sundry times in a diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by a son, as it should read, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom or through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image, the Greek word is character, of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, we'll go right ahead to a couple of real quick questions. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was human. He was as human as you are human and as subject to the energy derived from breathing air, drinking water, and eating food, and from relaxation, recreation, and exercise as you and I. He could be cut and bleed and indeed did bleed when he was cut and whipped. He was human, he was flesh, he was God changed into flesh, and he was risking everything. In chapter 2 of the book of Hebrews, right across the page, beginning in verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Now, if he was only human, then his life could not pay the consequences or atone for or pay the penalty for but one other human being. But if he was God in the flesh, then because he was the creator, his one life is worth more than all of the sum total of every human being who has ever lived or ever will live all put together because he created mankind. And so if it is God dying for his own creation by the only means through which God could die, becoming human and suffering death, tasting death, walking toward his death, then it is a perfect salvation, a perfect formula, even as he said to John in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, I am Alpha and Omega who was alive but who died and am alive forevermore. And I have a booklet entitled, Can God Die?, that goes thoroughly into that, that he himself said, I was dead. Most churches don't want to believe that. The mainstream fundamentalist churches believe he was alive. His soul was in hell, taunting and preaching to wicked spirits. 
They don't believe there was a lifeless body, utterly unconscious, inert in the blackness of oblivion and death lying on a stone slab in a tomb in the garden for three days and three nights, and there was only one member of the Godhead in heaven above. But through his mighty power put life back into that body that was the body of his beloved son, that the spiritual creature that was deeply and profoundly asleep could once again within that mind live and go and show his scars and his wounds to his own doubting disciples. Most churches don't understand it. They don't preach it, they don't teach it, and therefore they don't understand the true plan of salvation and even understand the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, most of you campers probably have not yet read my book entitled The Real Jesus. It may have been a little over your head five, six, eight, ten years ago, or twenty years ago when it came out, whenever it was that it came out, about, I think, twenty years ago now. Many of your parents have. You can have a free copy, and I would certainly heartily recommend it to you. But if you don't read that, certainly you ought to read these Gospels about the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that book is taken from the Gospels. So he has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, a Son, whom he has appointed heir of everything, all things, by whom he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is said in that scripture to have, quote, by himself purged our sins. Now we're going to see just exactly how that came about. It says in verse 9 of the second chapter that he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Did he suffer? Well, if it was impossible for him to sin, how can any rational thinking human being come to the point that they believe even so much as his little finger had to be pricked with a pin or a needle to cause pain? Why did he suffer pain? Why was there suffering? Why was there torture? If he was so flawlessly perfect that it was impossible to even be tempted. Now, we'll get into some dangerous waters here, and I won't plumb those waters as deeply as I might, because some human beings are very intolerant of temptation. There are those of you who could not tolerate Jesus Christ as your husband, or if you want to turn it around the other way, because God is not a respecter of persons and is not a respecter of the sexes in that sense, we all have an equal opportunity for salvation. Had it been any other gender, would not have tolerated temptation. What is temptation? Look it up in the dictionary. Look up the original Greek word in Bollinger's Companion Bible. Look up that word that has to do with a torturous piercing through, something that sets up an irritation that can become agony. Is it tempting to give in to the appetites of the flesh, taste, touch, sight, smell? Is it tempting when you're 16? Is it tempting when you're 30 or 40 or 50? It doesn't matter what your age is. depends upon the temptation you're beginning to describe. And Satan has plenty of it out here in this world to tempt us and everything that goes of, under the guise of music and entertainment and fun and all that, especially, especially drugs and sex and alcohol and those things which come along when we mature physically before we're really mature mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, and the body appetites are there, but the character is not there to control it. Temptation is temptation. 
and it can be powerful. And it requires a struggle. It requires a fight. Are there those who would never forgive a mate for confessing, I had a fight with that? Probably. But you have no savior if Christ didn't fight temptation. He fought it. It was a struggle. It was torturous. It was agonizing. And it was all at risk, or else we have no savior. It said in verse 10, reading the latter part of it, bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Notice in verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Over in chapter 5 and verse 7, read this scripture and tell me you could ever believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth could not have sinned, that it was utterly impossible for him to sin. As he saith also in another place, verse 6, to read up to it, you are a priest forever after the rank or the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, unto him it was able to save him from death. What is the penalty of sin? Death. Save him from what? The penalty of sin. Save him from sinning. Save him from the consequences of sin. And was heard in that he feared. How can he fear? This scripture is lying to you. If the false antichrists and their false doctrine that Jesus Christ could not have sinned are correct, there could have been no fear. Why would the Bible tell you Christ feared when there couldn't have been fear if he knew he could not sin? If you knew you would never miss and you were the greatest rifleman in the history of the world. If you knew you could shoot a perfect round of golf, that's acing every hole. That's one on a five par, which is utterly impossible in the human sphere. Then why worry? To portray Jesus Christ as sailing through life with a nonchalance that is kind of laid back ho-hum because there was no concern. There was no torturous, agonizing, struggling, fighting, prevailing with God, no subduing the human flesh by fasting to the point of near death to get so close to God and to have the things of the flesh of this temporal life, of this temporary existence, so in the background of his thoughts that it virtually was just not even there anymore. You can't read these scriptures and believe for a minute that Jesus Christ could not have sinned. It said, though he were a son, well, let's read this first in verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Did he fake those tears? Did he cry by faking it? Was he like a Hollywood actor pretending to cry in front of other people? Or did he cry because his very heart and his gut and his innermost being made him cry? Did he weep because he couldn't help it? If I ever cry, and it's awfully rare, I have pretty good control of my emotions, I'll tell you it's because I can't help it. I don't know how to fake it. Now, if I understand my Savior, and if I am able to cry out to him in time of need, then I understand a human being who was God changed into the flesh that had a gigantic struggle on his hands. 
And I look at his struggle, and I take comfort and courage from the fact of that struggle, and look at the fact that he overcame and cling to that, because now I understand the entire meaning of the book of Hebrews, which is the efficacy of the priesthood of Christ, because we have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father, who is our man in heaven, who is our brother, our friend up there in heaven, who can turn to the Father and say, I know exactly how she feels, or he feels, or I don't know exactly what they're undergoing. So Father, forgive them, help them, because I've been there. I suffered that kind of a temptation. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I'm going to turn back to the 53rd chapter of the book of Isaiah for a moment. There are several chapters here. The last part of the 52nd, of course, has to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In verse 1 of chapter 53, Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the eternal revealed? A prophecy about Christ. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. What are those emotions? Several of you, many of you in this room, have been through a divorce. There is no relationship in the human experience that is closer, more intimate, more soulful or human than marriage. It is a painful experience. I've talked to dozens of people. I'm one of my best friends over where I live is, has been divorced. Another man with whom I golf been divorced three times. And he will tell you that every one of them was agony, wasn't fun doesn't get easier the second time, he said. How do two people who are saying those sweet little endearments and even making up cute little cuddly words for each other become utterly estranged? Does it hurt? I will not go into another situation I'm dealing with here in my mind. I'm just thinking about a, a wonderful woman who was rejected of her workplace, of people who worked with her, and she underwent utter depression because of rejection. Because all of a sudden, other people didn't like her. And she couldn't go back to the place where she worked. When you undergo a feeling like that, a rejection, does it hurt? You bet it does. You're looking at someone who for eight solid years tried, begged, wrote, called, sent faxes, telegrams, telexes, and telephone calls, begging to see his own father was rejected of my dad and never had an opportunity to even talk to him for five seconds in eight years. I know what it is to be rejected. Do you know what it is to be rejected? Was Jesus rejected? It says he was rejected by his own brothers, Joseph, Simon, Jude, and James. They ridiculed him on an occasion when he was about to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Go on and do over there what you claim you can do, big man. They didn't believe in him at that time. They didn't even like him very well. He was rejected of his own family. Not Mary, but I mean his own kin, near and distant. He was rejected of the whole generation to whom he came. He was despised. Now, you know, when you have people that absolutely hate you, especially someone who used to love you, 
If you have someone who used to love you and now says, I hate you, does that hurt? Of course it does. You bet it hurts. Well, does it hurt if somebody walks up to you and goes, thoop, right in your face? Does that hurt? Hang on. Turn back to the 50th chapter just briefly in verse 6. Let's see if this hurts. Now, I've never, since I got it, well, a couple times I did, I guess. I've had a mustache. I had a mustache for about four years in the Navy, but I, I've never had a full beard. I had a little goatee a time or two. But I never did have anybody walk up to me with a pair of tweezers and start yanking them out one by one. I can tell you, because they're pretty deeply rooted in a man's beard, that would hurt. Especially if they grabbed a whole handful at once, don't you think? There's several bearded ones here. Go ahead, grab a hold, try to yank out a few. No, don't. I don't want to listen to you. I don't like to watch grown men cry. I gave my back, it says, to the smiters. This is a prophecy about Christ. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. And that's talking about a beard. My cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. They blindfolded him and whacked him one up alongside the head to make sure those cruel thorns jammed into his scalp and said, Prophesy, prophet, who hits you that time? But he was perfect, right? He couldn't sin, right? Then why did he suffer? Why undergo any of this? How can it be that a church organization that has known and understood everything I'm teaching you today and everything most of you already believe could turn and begin to accept a doctrine that Christ could not have sinned? We will see in just a moment how bad that really is. Then he, as if in crying out at that time, says in verse 7 of the 50th chapter of Isaiah, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded, therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. We have tended to characterize the beating and eventually the death of Jesus Christ as something that just sort of happened. It was a series of accidental happenings. It was just an onrushing, chaotic series of events, and eventually it just sort of overtook him, and the events of the moment just came tumbling along, and they caught up with him, and whop, he was just suddenly carted off over there under arrest and beaten and whipped, and the inevitable outcome was being crucified, put up on an upright pail, and had those big spikes driven through his feet and his wrists, and he was out there left to suffer until a spear was jammed in his side and he died. Not so. Several times prior to that time, they would have killed him, and they tried. But he said, it is not my time yet. But then, just before it was his time, he let them know it was his time. And on that last supper, he plainly told them it was his time. And when he came back the third time from casting himself headlong on the ground and praying to where the perspiration was like great drops of blood falling to the ground, Oh, Father, if there's some other way to change it, work it out some other way, please do that. He finally came back and said, Go ahead, take your rest, because the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. But when you see a man who is taken, blindfolded, tied, dragged, impaled, put up on a stake and killed, that's one thing. But when you see a man who understood every bit of the cut of the lash and understood every gob of spit to drip down his cheek and set his face like a flint and walked right up and met it, you're dealing with a different concept, aren't you? Now, it's easy to tell kids about Samson. 
had long hair and he was still strong. They really turn on to that one. It's easy to tell kids about Daniel and the lion's den, about David and Goliath, about Noah and the flood. You can turn on kids in Sunday school in most churches by talking about all the so-called heroes of the Bible. But the way the churches of this world portray Jesus, the long-haired, effeminate do-gooder that said, turn the other cheek, and walk through life the way the churches portray him, it's pretty tough for most Sunday school teachers to get kids to say, my hero is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Most of them will say the latest heavy metal rock star, movie star, and it probably isn't even Tom Selleck, that's the girl's hero. But it'll be, it'll be a sports hero, it'll be a motion picture actor, it'll be a musician, so-called musician, somebody who makes noise on a metal instrument of some kind. But how many young people growing up understand the incredible character, the willpower, the ability, the absolute heroic stature of Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I would venture to say very few. Verse 3 of chapter 53, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Grief is a very real emotion, isn't it? And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And I would recommend to you a sermon entitled Christ's Lonely Sacrifice that I preached about two years ago at the Feast of Tabernacles, dealing with that in far greater detail. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Do wounds hurt? Do cuts, whippings, lashes, bruises hurt? The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The same church that is now turning its back on Jesus Christ, the sufferer, Jesus Christ, the despised, Jesus Christ, the rejected, the bruised, the cut, the wounded, the injured, has also said that his stripes are not efficacious for our physical healing. Incredible. 1 John, the fourth chapter, and verse 1. 1 John 4 and verse 1, and to let God's Word tell you exactly what this new doctrinal proposition is that is being circulated among some of God's people. Chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that is actually telling us that confesses that Christ was human. Christ was a man, is of God, and every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, physical, who could grow tired and weak, who could grow hungry, who could be cut and bleed and bruised and hurt, who could be spit upon and feel disgusted and shamed and hurt and injured in his innermost spirit. Whoever confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Over in 2 John, 
and verse 6, This is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world. This was rearing its ugly head in the first century, toward the end of that century, during the life of John, before the close of the canon of the New Testament, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. If there was no risk, if there was no incalculable, monstrous risk, if Jesus Christ of Nazareth did not lay eternity on the line, then I say to you, you have no Savior. But because he risked it all, because his entire life, not just a few unfortunate hours at the end of it, but from the time he was a little boy, Christ at five was the best five-year-old who's ever walked the earth. Christ at eleven was the brightest, sweetest, most wonderful, loving, respectful, obedient, fine young man, talented, physically well-developed. He could climb and leap and jump and help his dad in moving big stones and site preparation and building in their family business. He was a wholesome, perfect eleven. At 12, he was a perfect 12. He wasn't a perfect 31. He was only 12, but he was a perfect 12. And at 14 or 19, if you could meet him, there isn't a boy or a girl here that wouldn't have said, what a guy. I think back to the only time that I went to some Hollywood entertainment about Jesus Christ, and I've never forgotten it because it had a lot of very bad things about it and a couple of very sweet and very good things, one of which has stuck with me. And that was from the play that I saw in an outdoor theater over in Hollywood, Jesus Christ Superstar. It was very moving when the young girl who played the part of Mary Magdalene sang a song that I still hear once in a while that is a very beautiful piece of music, by the way, in spite of the background from which it came. And the words are, I don't know how to love him. Isn't it logical? that Mary Magdalene and the other women who went along with them to prepare the baggage and the luggage and who cooked and took care of them had admiration and perhaps more than admiration toward Jesus Christ? Could they not admire the best man who ever lived? I say to you, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is your hero. He's not only your savior, he's your hero. He was a human being. He overcame sin in this fleshly body by continually struggling and crying out to God with prayers and tears and strong crying unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. This church will stand fast on the truth of God, of the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Yes, it was possible for Christ to sin. But through the grace and the power of God, he, by himself, with God's help, overcame sin, and overcame sin all the way to the death of the cross, and is set down at the right hand of God the Father on high, and therefore is your Savior. Those who say he could never have sinned, he didn't risk it all, are of the spirit of Antichrist. Let us pray God. We never drift into such incredible error and cling fast to the truth we know.